0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, a podcast by American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment, and I'm joined by...
1: Emma Posey, the Coalition's manager.
0: And we have a great episode for you today. Uh, Today, we had a conversation with uh, Dr. Brad Wilcox. He's going to be mad at me that I called him (laughs) Dr. But he's he's a fantastic guy. Uh, He's the director uh, of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, um, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. But before I jump into his bio, um, just wanted to, to, you know, run a couple things by you. Uh, first, that you should rate our podcast five stars on Spotify, on uh, Apple Podcasts, and that you should subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, you know, we don't make our uh, you know, we don't make Jake and Jared edit for hours at a time on the weekend uh, just for you to listen to the podcast. So please watch it. Um, I am trying to dress nice. This is like kind mm-hmm. of a kind of a new thing for me, you know. So take all of that in. Watch on YouTube, please. Um, also, we have a uh, form on the website. Uh, the interest form for Summit, a conference on American statecraft. I would encourage you all to go fill that out. Uh, we are going to have some very exciting updates soon. I know I say that every week, but you know, putting together a conference is just is just uh, it's a lot of work. Hard. It's hard work. Um, so moving into uh, you know, what we were talking about with Brad today. Uh, the family. Um, why is it important? What what does family structure do for, for our society, for our culture? What does it do for our economy? Um, you know, Brad is, is one of the leading experts on the conservative side uh, of this issue. Uh, you know, we've taken a, a big interest, uh, you know, in family policy here at American moment. You know, one of our core principles is that, um, you know, the the family rooted in faith and tradition, um, is, Uh, the bedrock of our nation and must be protected Mm -hmm. I almost forgot the uh, language (laughs) there Um, and so you know we've been really excited for a while to have this conversation uh, with Brad which we were able to have because of Emma our new ish I mean you've been here for like a little over a month month now
1: it's becoming official
0: Um, yeah it's it's for real we were just talking about this before like we can't like fire you. like now. We need you. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
1: it's pretty great. I've secured my slot here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your, you know, how you got to know Brad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what really draws you to. To his work um, and what you thought about the episode today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, everyone has their like red pill moment that like secures them in like this new conservative moment. And so, for me, it actually started officially about a year and a half ago. Um, I took a class called Fibonacci Theology, um, and it's just everything you can possibly imagine. And so, as I'm in this class, like spending every day going to my Catholic professor's office, who was my political science teacher and mentor, and saying, What in the world are we supposed to do with this? because more or less like we're taking philosophy, we're taking scripture and we're taking like our own cultural expectations and we're, um, we're using and abusing it to sort of justify the lifestyle, um, and the reality between men and women, between parents and children that we want. And yet it just wasn't sitting well. So I started, um, and I studied public policy and specifically family policy in depth after that. And so it was actually, um, coming across Brad's work, just sort of as I was researching for a paper that I started reading, um, and really learning about the importance of family formation and it's not only that like ah marriage is like a good thing and we should support it but like statistically case after case after case like children who are raised in a two-parent um man-wife married household do better on every measure educationally um psychologically behaviorally um and financially and people who are married do better too um more so than any other family structure possible and so as i'm researching these topics i just became increasingly um, interested in it, especially in what it looks like in our public policy conversations. So COVID happened and a lot of the internships and jobs I was looking at were either canceled or like placed online. So I just started cold emailing people and basically being like, hi, I really like the work that you do. I think it's important. Maybe we could talk more about it. And so Brad was one of the people that I reached out to. Um, He was very kind. I remember I was in Alexandria one day and I got a phone call. And so a number I didn't know, I answered and it was like hey this is Brad Wilcox and I was like oh my gosh Brad Wilcox is calling me right now this is the coolest thing ever like this is no straight up nerd like you all will know um yeah so we started working together about a year ago um me as a research assistant working for him and helping him out on some of his projects then also working with the Institute for Family Studies um yeah so it was a great um full circle moment here to have him on the show and getting to continue having these conversations with him that began in such a fortuitous manner um all this time ago
0: yeah, and we, you know, it's it's thanks to you that uh, he was on the episode. You were able to make the connection for us. And so we thought it only fair that we have you make a, uh, a cameo on the podcast again. Um, but to give uh, his official uh, yeah. bio, uh, Brad Wilcox is the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. In his latest work, Soulmates, Religion, Sex, Love, and Marriage Among African-Americans and Latinos, Brad Wilcox shines a much needed spotlight on the lives of strong and happy minority couples. Professor Wilcox's research has focused on marriage, fatherhood, and cohabitation, especially on the way that family structure, civil society, and culture influence the quality and stability of family life in the United States and around the globe. So with that, we will go to our esteemed guest, Brad Wilcox. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Brad. Good to be here, Nick. So kind of as uh, an introductory thing to uh, all of our listeners, kind of a question we like to right. like to ask all of our guests, how did you get here? How did you you know, get your career started? I know you're not here in D.C., but um, right. tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and, and how right. you got there.
2: Yeah, well, Nick, I was raised by a single mom. And when I got to the University of Virginia, I came to kind of the realization that But kind of personal and sort of intellectual, as I was sort of engaging professors and reading things that you know dads were pretty important for kids um, in general and for me as you know as a young man myself, kind of not having a father in my life on a day-to-day basis. And then I kind of had the sort of the insight that marriage is an institution that connects you know Mm -hmm. men typically on average to Mm -hmm. their kids, and so that if we're interested in trying to sort of strengthen dad's connection to their kids we've got to be thinking about how how do we strengthen marriage as an institution so that was kind of a you know that was sort of my my beginning perspective on these issues as an undergraduate at UVA and then i went on to sort of work at a, a small think tank in washington and then study sociology of both family and religion at princeton for a number of years get my phd and then i was able to come back to UVA to teach sociology basically of family and mm-hmm. religion at the University of Virginia. And then I've been writing uh, for more pop- popular audiences, you know, since the the mid-2000s basically on on topics related to family and related to religion as well. So that's sort of the short, kind of gives you kind of the short perspective on what kind of brought me into this arena mm-hmm. and and why I'm you know committed to working in this space as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people in dc end up working on you know issues that they're very passionate about and obviously you've had a lot of you know uh personal experience that's been very impactful to you uh tell us a little bit more about your your family now we were talking a little bit before the show about your kids um tell us about your about your family and how they play into all
2: this yeah so um i've been married more than 25 years now and my wife and i have a, a lot of kids we have both adoptive and biological kids and i think Uh, There is nothing more humbling and and more rewarding about being the father of a large family kind of you you see so much experience so much. And one of the things that I appreciate, though, about, you know, having a a large family now is that there's kind of this sort of this thing that happens every summer where I'm in, in the pool kind of playing with and teaching my kids how to swim. And what's just kind of amazing about having a lot of kids is that, you know, here I am at age 50 and I'm still kind of in the <laughs> water with, with little kids, you know, yeah. kind of helping them learn how to swim and um, and, uh, and and sort of enjoy that sort of premier summer experience. So I view, you know, my experience at this point as a, as a as a gift just to have, you know, a lot of kids and kids who are constantly. Uh, challenging me uh, and surprising me in um, in new and powerful ways. Mm.
1: That's so good. And that sentiment certainly plays itself out in your work really well. Um, So this is a full circle moment. The first time that you and I connected was about a year ago today. um, And you were starting research on your book um, regarding marriage and specifically this myth of soulmate marriage. So first, could you define and describe what is this phrase um, soulmate marriage? Um, How does it play itself out in society? And then why is it so detrimental to marriage, to culture, and to society as a whole?
2: Yeah. So I think there's this kind of romantic idea. I mean, it's always been there to some extent, right, in, in our culture for a very long time. But it's sort of, I think, gotten additional oxygen since the 1970s when we kind of had this more kind of expressive and more emotional view of marriage kind of come to the fore. And it's articulated and expressed, you know, in a thousand pop songs and a hundred self-help books. But it's kind of this idea that soulmate model, is this idea that marriage is about making you fulfilled, about finding someone who kind of makes you happy, who meets all your needs, who kind of connects with you on some deep and powerful level at all times and places, and for whom there aren't necessarily all that many sacrifices you have to make to kind of make this relationship work. And this kind of more emotional, more therapeutic approach to marriage basically discounts sort of the importance of children. It discounts the importance of cash or, or money mm-hmm. in a family, in a marriage. And it really, at some level, discounts the importance of commitment. You know, so those three C's are discounted, you know. And the problem with the soulmate model of marriage is it doesn't sort of recognize and appreciate how marriage is much more than a feeling mm-hmm. you know it's about kind of establishing an abiding relationship mm-hmm. with one person it's about establishing a kind of a generational attachment you know between parents and kids and, and even obviously hopefully gr- you know grandkids as well so and it's also about kind of establishing uh, you know a sort of a financial undertaking where you're kind of working together as as partners, as spouses mm-hmm. in a marriage to kind of build and sustain uh, a model of life that has a financial foundation that's, that's strong and stable for you and for any kids that you have as well. So I think the problem with the soulmate model in part is it doesn't kind of appreciate those three goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, another problem with the soulmate model is it's quite fragile because, right, feelings are a fragile foundation for any relationship, and for obviously a marriage in particular, because our feelings ebb and flow, you know, over time, and people don't necessarily see that when they get into kind of a soulmate uh, approach. The final problem, though, with the soulmate model is that it doesn't deliver on, I think, what it's trying to get at, and I, I explain this in the book I'm working on by looking at Liz Gilbert's, um, you know, best-selling book, you know, and her her best-selling book is uh, Eat, Pray love. And, you know, in the final section of that book, she's kind of talking about she's seeking happiness. She's going, literally traveling, traversing the world in, in pursuit of happiness. And she thinks that she's going to find happiness with her soulmate, whom she meets in Bali in kind of this incredibly romantic atmosphere. And turns out they get married. But it turns out about ten years later something happened or someone happened and, and she leaves her husband for for yet a, another partner and I think the problem here is that there's this sort of pursuit of this kind of like romantic model mm-hmm. um, that you know one uh, you know where you're trying to seek happiness as she kind of writes about it but no one's going to make you happy kind of all the time in in every way and so it's it's sort of a recipe for for a disappointment and in fact find in our, our research that people who embrace the soulmate model, ironically, are less happy in their marriages mm. compared to husbands and wives who embrace a more what I call a family first model that sort of recognizes marriage about not just that communion between spouses, but also about kids and cash and commitment.
0: Mm. Yeah. So... You mentioned that this, you know, soulmate marriage concept really started, uh, you know, in the 1970s. I don't want to make you sure. give away the entire, you sure. know, secret sauce in your book, but what do you, what do you view that, that caused that, um, and 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 how is that negatively affecting uh, society today, aside from just less happy marriages?
2: Well, you know, Tom Wolfe wrote this really powerful kind of essay on the me decade when he was talking about the 1970s. And it's just sort of striking kind of how many books, how many songs, sort of how many cultural uh, pieces in that decade were kind of encouraging people to focus on themselves, on their own needs, their own desires, and also encouraging them to sort of focus on their feelings, you know, um, and thinking that. This was the way to lead a life and so that i think sort of set of orientations in the 70s dovetailed nicely with this kind of more soul model of, of marriage that we see i think lift off and it's of course no accident also that this is the decade when divorce just you know goes through the roof in american life and so when we hit the 1980s it begins divorce that is begins mm-hmm. to kind of come down and i think in the wake of the 1980s for those folks who are getting married post 1980 there is a kind of either explicit or even tacit recognition that the soulmate model and a kind of easy approach to divorce is no longer prudent uh, or even, you know, the most obviously principled way to, to go about marriage. Hmm.
1: Yeah. That's really good. So I was reading a, another marriage book the other day, and it was talking about this uh, two-part understanding of marriage. And so one is this idea of mutual sacrifice, and the other is personal fulfillment. And I think um, it's really easy for our generation to focus on the side of personal fulfillment. So the spouse that I'm with, like you were saying, with the soulmate marriage is the one who makes me my best self. It makes me come alive. And they really embody everything that I want to be in life. And yet the moment that they're no longer providing that, um, um, in your life, then all of a sudden you're left to question, then what is the point of this relationship? Like, why am I still in it? So, I was wondering if you could talk about um, how we should understand marital success and happiness. And um, yeah, so, and then like, what's a good measure for this? Like, how should we conceive of this? What should we aim for? And then, as a follow up to that, do men and women perceive marital success and happiness differently? And if so, like, in what ways does that typically manifest itself? because I could imagine that there are instances and you read stories of this, right? Where like a man's like, yep, my marriage is going great. I'm so happy. And the wife is like, but actually I want a divorce because this is miserable. And so like (laughs) what, like what, like what's going on in these instances where there's just a major disconnect. Um, And so yeah, sort of like paint like the best picture and then how men and women might like perceive that differently and can pursue that together.
2: Sure. So I think in terms of success when it comes to marriage, I think one marker of success is going the distance, you know, just managing to hold on sometimes by your fingernails because, you know, in every marriage, there are going to be moments when, you know, you're angry, you're disappointed, you're hurt by something that your spouse has done. And yet the challenge is sort of recognizing that this is a commitment that you've made to them and often uh, implicitly towards your children as well. and so. You've you made this commitment. You've taken this vow, and so you've got to kind of stick with it. Is is the thought there in um, almost all circumstances? There are exceptions, I would say, in things like abuse, for instance. Mm-hmm. But sort of having this sort of idea that kind of getting to the end of your life, having been you know faithful to your spouse, having stuck with your spouse is is I would say kind of my primary marker of success. Mm-hmm. But I also would say, too, that we have to understand that love is not a feeling. Love is a decision, you know. And Mm -hmm. so that means that uh, we have to decide, you know, day in and day out to to sacrifice for our spouse, to sacrifice for our kids. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be plenty of occasions where where we fail in that, you know, in that desire. But. We have to keep kind of picking ourselves up and trying to continue to love and to pursue the good of the other, you know, in the context of of marriage and family life. That's sort of, I think, the sort of second mark of sort of succeeding. Am am I kind of living the vocation to marriage? Well, am I sacrificing for my husband, for my wife and for my kids? Uh, And do I also see my family as an opportunity to serve? kin and a larger community as well. So it's not kind of this sort of privatistic idea of family life, which I think conservatives can kind of fall into. You know, that's, that's one of our, I'd say, problems. Now, in terms of men and women, I think, uh, on average, in general, women have a better sense of kind of the temperature of, of the marriage. They have a better sense of sort of what's happening in terms of the, all the dynamics of married life. And so there are certainly many cases where a husband can think that things are reasonably good in the marriage and in the family and the wife is deeply dissatisfied and, you know, is even on the verge of or or goes ahead and, and files for divorce. And so I think one of the challenges is that, you know, there's a way in which husbands have to be more emotionally engaged than they might kind of typically naturally be inclined to and to do more in that department in sort of the emotional arena. I think at the same time, though, it's it's important and valuable for wives to appreciate that husbands love for them can be expressed in nonverbal and non emotive ways. And to sort of be aware of the fact that, well, you know, he's doing this around the household. He's doing this with the kids. He's doing this at work to sustain me sustain us. And, you know, I I need to be attentive to that as well. And then also to to have emotional outlets outside of the marriage uh, where, you know, a girlfriend or a sister or a mother or another woman in in her world is, you know, providing kind of, you know, friendship that will give her different ways to experience um, intimacy and different sources of support besides just Kind of relying upon her husband so that you know she's able to get if she's looking for you know more intimacy and more emotional connections yeah. she can kind of see them you know as being realized in in venues that are not just with her husband that helps the thing too in terms of like Making, you know, married life, and this is true for men as well, but I think if when you're kind of embedded in a, in a broader community as a, both a husband and as a wife, uh, that kind of in some ways, m- m- it brings down in a healthy way the expectations that you might have for, you know, your husband or your wife kind of meeting some of your core emotional and social needs.
0: Yeah, I want to ask you about COVID-19. I know we're all sick of talking about it, but... Uh the pandemic, I think, I mean, I found my, you know, now fiance at the very beginning uh, of the of the pandemic. Um, and I think people predicted a lot of impacts that that the pandemic and being being, uh, you know, locked down and, and not being able to go to work and not being able to meet up with your friends or whatever. Uh, people predicted that that things would happen, you know, that that it would, uh, you know, affect perhaps marriages and, you know, negatively, maybe increased fertility, um, you know. So I, I want to ask, what were your predictions prior to, you know, maybe a year of being locked down uh, and, and, and where were you proven right? Um, what, what has, I guess, as an initial question, you know, right. how has the pandemic affected marriage and family.
2: Right. Well, I think it's important for me to acknowledge that I've gotten things wrong in the past when it comes to predicting kind of what's going to happen to families uh in the future. But honestly in in March of, you know, 2020, I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal just after the lockdown had kind of taken place and I predicted that that moment in time that we would see a decline in divorce. that we would see kind of a growing sense of commitment Mm -hmm. and appreciation for all that kind of marriage, a spouse, a family does for someone. And so that piece was published in journal in March of 2020. And a lot of people at that time were predicting that we would see a huge spike in divorce. This would kind of gut marriage. And um, they were wrong. And in this case, I was right. So there's a way in which, and the point is that in the face of kind of dramatic, social problems, dramatic, you know, historical uh, uh, traumas in a sense, you know, people often realize how much their family and their friends matter to them. And I think that happened for a lot of us during COVID. Um, And so I I certainly had a greater appreciation for my wife and my, my family at this moment in our history. So that's what has happened. We have seen for those folks who are married, more commitment On average, less divorce on average, you know, greater appreciation on average in our American marriages. That's the good news. Now, the question is, how does kind of COVID and the consequences of COVID affect family formation, affect kind of how people are getting married? And so my big worry going forward is that the kind of social um, conflict and economic fallout uh, polarization, political polarization that we've seen kind of in COVID time, I'm just not sure how that's going to affect the likelihood that young adults today will be getting married in the next couple of years or even the next decade. So my big question, and right now it's just a question, is sort of how does the future play out for you know, both marriage and fertility? And we've got a big new survey that we've done with YouGov on this question. So I hope to have some better answers to sort of mm-hmm. that you know, issue like what's the future look like post-COVID for marriage and fertility, um, but I don't yet have a clear sense of how this is going to play out for you know marriage uh, and and fertility in the next uh, basically you know three or four or five years. So that's the, that's the question for me.
0: Yeah, and what are what would you say? I'm mean, pin picture for us that the the I know you don't have the results yet, but what could the Best and worst case scenarios be.
2: I think the best case scenario is that kind of in the face of this sort of, you know, I talked to a lot of singles, you know, during COVID time who were, you know, c- kind of painfully single, <laughs> and you know they really realized that, you know, for them, being you know, living without a spouse meant a lot more loneliness in mm-hmm. in this unusual moment, right? And so I think for some of them you know, there was a a great interest, a heightened interest in finding a spouse and getting married. So the sort of the the rosy scenario here is that this trauma leads a lot of people to sort of reevaluate their priorities and to find, you know, uh, a good partner and marry that person, start a family. That's sort of the and They would do so in larger numbers than we saw prior to prior to COVID hitting. I think the more uh, the more dystopian scenario is that all the kind of economic dislocation, all the political, cultural polarization that we have seen may lead us to a world where um, a substantial share of young adults just kind of feel like they don't have the economic resources and even kind of like the, the sort of cultural confidence, you know, in marriage and in family life. To go ahead and and pop you know uh, pop the question and go ahead and get married and have kids, so if that scenario comes out, um, what we might see is a world where there's even more polarization by ideology and religion, where young adults who are more religious and or who are more conservative are kind of continuing to to marry and have kids in relatively higher numbers, but young adults who are less religious more progressive and also who are more economically disadvantaged Mm -hmm. um, are even less likely to marry and have kids. And we have talked about at the Institute for Family Studies kind of two possibilities that are pretty sobering. One is that about a third of young adults kind of your age will never marry. And that would be kind of a, a really dramatic historical shift. And then the other related possibility is that about one in four, 25 percent of young adults your age will never have children. And what this would mean is that there'd be a kind of a whole generation of American men and women who are kind of living what we call kind of the bare branches way of life, where they have no kin of their own and I think for a lot of 20-somethings, that might seem kind of fine today. But, you know, when you kind of move into midlife and then older life, that is a a pretty hard road to walk. And we saw a really powerful article in the New York Times about Japan, kind of chronicling an older generation of Japanese adults today living on their own and often unvisited and, you know, um, even even in death, you know, not being discovered for days, weeks, even months. So there's like a whole industry in Japan where these companies go in and, you know, clean out the remains of um, apartments and homes where older Japanese have died and not been discovered for a a long period of time. So this is kind of like a very dystopian, you know, so long term. So the, the, the concern here, right, is that, you know, I worry that we're going to see a large number of young adults today never having a spouse, never having a child, and kind of losing out on – and some people, you know, shouldn't marry, shouldn't have kids. That's understandable. But there are a lot of people I think who are going to be wishing um, that they had had a spouse, wishing that they had had kids, um, and won't be able to for any number of reasons.
0: So historically, aside from, you know, the, the example of Japan that you just mentioned, has – have we ever seen anything like this before? I mean, approaching in any past society like this level of, you know, not like non-marriage and also...
2: I mean, you know, marriage and fertility have ebbed and flowed in both in Europe and in the United States over time. There have been obviously points like in the 1930s when fertility fell pretty dramatically as people worried about uh, the Great uh, Depression. So there's been kind of an ebbed flow, but I, I think if the more dystopian you know, version of what I just said to you kind of happens in the next decade, I think we will see record lows in fertility, record lows in marriage, and record highs in childlessness and in kind of non-marriage. And so that would put us more on the kind of path to Japan, which is now kind of what I call like the land of the setting sun, demographically mm. speaking.
1: That's so interesting. And I think you, Lyman Stone, and perhaps Dr. Wolf maybe wrote an article on this, and you were talking about the implications of dropping fertility rates in particular. And so one, this is a major concern when it comes to having a um, a fit and well-formed army um, if you don't have... Sure if you don't have people weren't like you don't have an army one day and you don't have a means of defense. Um, and then two, you have then a really large um, aging population. Um, so sort of like in a triangle where you have like a lot of older, and then you have very few people coming up. So what it does for the workforce, what it does for social sure. security, like massive, massive implications that I think we've probably just begun to realize. Um, yeah. And so it's really interesting because we're looking at these statistics, but there's a really, I think some of your work is pointing to this and you can elaborate, but there's actually a divide between like the elite wealthy um, individuals in society and then like the working class um, and poorer people in society. So Charles Murray wrote his book Coming Apart, and he argued that from the 1960s to the present, like the divides that we see in society aren't actually along racial lines, but they're along class lines. And so whereas the 1960s and before, like we typically had the same experience. So we would eat at the same restaurants, shop at the same stores. Um, We would attend the same churches on Sunday. But now and increasingly since then, like the elite and then like middle america working class are in just two totally different worlds where they don't talk the same language they don't watch the same things and their experiences are completely different so then pairing that um i think it creates a really interesting um intersection of those ideas um and i think you wrote an article at one point saying something to the effect of like living left um living right but voting left and how the elite and wealthy like will present a very public message of like follow whatever path that you want, marriage, no marriage, like children um, outside Mm -hmm. of marriage or not, like you're going to succeed and do well either way. But then very personally, the elite actually follow a very traditional lifestyle. Um, And so you just have to question like, okay, if this is what you're promoting, but you're actually not practicing this and you're looking down upon it, your own family, then there seems to be a disconnect there. Um, So, yeah. So like in light of the narrative that you've addressed, like regarding soulmate marriage um, and then the importance of family structure. Um, Can you talk a little bit about like how elites um, versus like working class America are like exhibiting these marriage trends, fertility trends, divorce? Um, Right. Yeah.
2: So we did a report on California, Wendy Wing, Mm -hmm. these two family studies and I did. And what was interesting about the report in part is that we found in California is that college educated Californians or more elite Californians are more likely to embrace A public ethic of family diversity. And that's less the case for Californians who are not college educated. Mm -hmm. So their public ethic is to kind of embrace family diversity. And I've talked to you know executives at Google, for instance, who kind of would you know embrace this, uh, this public ethic, right? Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to their private orientation we see in the survey is that well-educated Californians are more likely to, to value having their kids in marriage uh, than other Californians, ironically. And they're also more likely to be stably married, you know. So, again, for those elites, what we're seeing is a kind of a talking left, walking right pattern when it comes to family life and other things, too, you know, obviously. Uh, another kind of good example of this is kind of, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was sort of notorious for you know, keeping his own kids off of technology. And so here you have like this guy who's like, you know, producing all this incredible technology for kids that's used, you know, extreme amounts by our kids today. And he was very kind of careful to limit his own, his own kids access to this tech, you know, so again, there is a way in which our elites um say kind of one thing or do one thing or even profit from one thing in public but privately they're kind of pursuing a more kind of i think traditional way of life on on many different fronts but not all so that's that's part of the story here Um, and i think they do that right because they recognize that stable marriage is a good for them you know for their 401k for their house and it's a good for their kids they recognize that their kids are going to are going to flourish um, in school and in life if they can manage to keep it together, stay together. And George Packer had a really interesting essay in The Atlantic on this, talking about how in his New York circle, all these elite parents are like, you know, they're, they're basically feeding their kids organic food. They're avoiding divorce because they want to protect their kids. They want to keep their kids shot at the American dream secure. And they recognize that divorce and family chaos dramatically increases their kids will fall. And that, that's a correct uh, insight as the research does. But when I presented this report to some colleagues at UVA, uh, the response was, sure, this makes sense. But let's be honest, Brad, you know, if we were to look at, you know, Tennessee, for instance, you've got plenty of folks who would embrace a conservative mindset about family in kind of in public and how they talk. But they're actually living lives that are marked by, you know, family instability and chaos. Right. And so a lot of unfortunately today, working class Americans who are on some public attitudinal measures, you know, more conservative than our elites are when it comes to their own kind of lives, you know, living lives that are marked by more. Um, you know more divorce, more cohabitation, more non-marital childbearing, and you know more family chaos. And so, I think the challenge for us, in part as a country, is how do we get um, our working-class Americans uh, to live, um, you know, more like the Google executive that I spoke to um, in the Bay Area, um, and get more of our elites, you know, like the Google executive that I spoke to in the Bay Area to actually publicly communicate to every American the value of stable marriage for adults and especially for kids and for communities. So that's, that's I think, the challenge in part facing us both culturally and, and policy-wise and then also economically, is how do we kind of move to a world where um, we're reinforcing the importance of stable marriage um, publicly and making it also uh, a more accessible path for working class and poor Americans.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So as we mentioned, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are staffers are people who are working in D.C. So can you talk us through ways that we can make that part of our common nomenclature? And so, yeah. So one of the things that you've written on extensively, Brookings has written on and is starting to take over, I think, more of like a just major news media is this idea of the success sequence. Um, So could you talk us through? um, Yeah. Like what is the success sequence? Why does it matter? um, And then how is that potentially a response and a path forward to the problem that you just articulated here.
2: So the, the success sequence is a kind of idea that was articulated in part by Bell Sawhill and Ron Haskins at Brookings Institution, you know, a number of years ago. And then Wendy Wong and I looked at kind of its relevance for millennials today. And we found that millennials in their 30s who followed basically got at least a high school degree, who worked full-time, who married before having kids, had a very small risk of poverty. Only about 3% of them were poor in their 30s. And also, you know, had an 86% shot at being in the middle class or higher if they kind of have taken care of at least some basic education, worked full time, and married before having kids. Now, when you talk about the success sequence, um, you often get a kind of sneering response on the part of many of our elites. I mean, the irony there is that I'd say almost everyone who's critiqued me on this issue has themselves followed or is following the success sequence or so is going to laugh that these are people who on the one hand are saying oh the success sequence you know blah, you know it doesn't matter it's not important it's so bourgeois you know whatever i'm like well I just, i'm curious like what is your <laughs> what is your path and almost every one of them has followed the success sequence themselves mm-hmm. so it's like okay i'm going to i'm going to watch you walk I'm not going to listen to what you're saying talking um, but you know so the the point is that we see that there's this link between these three things now there's no controversy over the value of education, no controversy over the value of work. When you talk, it's, it's really all comes down to marriage. The marriage piece of the sequence makes a lot of people kind of nervous um, or upset or, or, or contrary, um, including Matt Brunig, you know, the sort of um, progressive uh, blogger and an um, and activist. And people like Brunig would say that when you look at people's economic success, work does all the work. That's his line. And that as long as a household has a full-time worker, they're going to do fine financially. But what we find in our work, in our research on this issue, is that people who put the baby carriage before marriage, millennials, are about you know 60% more likely to, um, to be poor. And I think what's happening there, and what, what Matt Brenning doesn't appreciate, and people like him, is that marriage is a stabilizing force in the lives of young families and that stability pays very real economic dividends so you know what i'm talking about is if you have kids outside of marriage you're much more likely to break up as a couple and then you have two households you have to support financially and that's of course not as economically efficient you often will have for the non-resident parent usually the guy you're gonna be start paying child support um in your own research you know you know how i mean i talked to a, a guy recently who was Paying like forty percent of his of his income goes to paying child support. Uh, you're going to have to pay for attorneys' fees if you get divorced, or if, you know if there's some kind of other legal issue involved with you know a family breakup. So what people like Brunig don't appreciate, and what many progressives don't appreciate, is that sort of how we order parenthood really matters. Because if you put marriage before the baby carriage, you've got a much more stable family life, and that you know um, is much more economically kind of sensible and feasible. Uh, and then the other thing, too, is that if you're a single parent, it's much harder to work full time. And so if, if you like Brunick think it's all about work, well, I don't think he really appreciates that as a single parent. You know, it's just much harder to kind of have a full commitment to full time work um, if you're kind of managing everything. You know, you're managing your kids, you know, schooling, your kids care, you know, and a job. You know, it's much easier for folks who have two parents in the household to have at least one full-time worker who is fully engaged in, in making a living for the family than it is for a single parent. So, bottom line is that I think the controversial piece about the success sequence is primarily about marriage, mm-hmm. and yet the critics, I think, don't appreciate how marriage is a stabilizing force in kids' lives, adults' lives, and that has real, I mean, it has huge social implications, but also has real practical financial implications as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I want to dispel some you know misconceptions i think that people on the right in particular uh have about marriage and specifically how you know we we get people convince people uh, you know especially young people like us to to get married and to make that a priority so it it seems that on one end you have you know the libertarians who say you know helping people have families is socialism Okay, whatever. Um, and then you have people kind of on the other side of the spectrum who, who you know, would be almost like just New Deal cultural conservatives sort of like, yeah, we should just like give people checks every month till you know, if they have kids, whatever. Um, my instinct is that both of these opinions are wrong and that the right answer is is probably somewhere in the middle. What distinguishes us from you know the the left when we're trying to you know incentivize people to do something that's that's a public good i mean it's 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 good for your country it's good for your community that you get married and have kids it's good for you how do we convince people to do it in a way that's not you know just giving away a ton of free money or you know not doing anything at all
2: well i think part of the response to your question is to understand and appreciate when it comes to the diagnosis that the reason that we're not getting married and not staying married and not having kids and numbers that we were doing, you know, in some earlier era is partly cultural mm-hmm. and the left is sort of allergic to that cultural story in the main, that cultural diagnosis. And so on the right, we've got to do a better job of basically communicating in our public institutions from public schools to public PSAs, how much marriage matters for adults and kids. I mean, a lot of 20 somethings, you know, kind of your age, roughly speaking, think that sort of having fun and focusing on your job is much more likely to make you happy and to give your life a sense of meaning direction and purpose they are wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> the data is very clear on this that marriage is a much better predictor of your you know your emotional well-being for instance than work um, that marital quality is better predictor of you know your emotional well-being than your job satisfaction so we kind of need to do a better job on the cultural front I think to of change the sort of cultural approach. On the policy front, I think we have to appreciate is that, you know, education and work are crucial to renewing family life. (laughs) Uh, And so just kind of giving people cash, you know, as many on the left want to do is is not going to cut it. And so what we need to do on the education front is to turn our educational attention away from higher education, And towards vocational education or technical education, and both in terms of how we fund and how we prioritize what's happening in our high schools, for instance, we just do a lot more to prepare our young adults for things like, you know, IT or, you know, culinary work or you know, plumbing or, you know, construction, uh, things that have, you know, jobs that have some real relevance to a lot of ordinary young adults mm-hmm. who are often neglected and overlooked, and that put them on a path towards a decent job and towards establishing a financial foundation that makes them good prospects for marriage. So that's, so that's the education point. The work point, I think, is to recognize, as Orin Cass has argued in American Compass, you got his book right here, that uh, we need to make work pay, for Americans who don't have college degrees and the right has got to sort of rethink this. And I think a pretty powerful and profound way. And one way to do that is by, you know, a wage subsidy, I think revamping the EITC, the income tax credit um, so that it, it's basically subsidizing work on a paycheck to paycheck basis. And it's also not penalizing marriage in terms of how work is being subsidized. So the people have a sense that, you know, I can you know, help to support a family with, you know, mm-hmm. with this, this, reformed policy, this uh, work-friendly policy. Um, And then when it comes to affording the costs of um, raising kids today, I think some kind of family allowance that is targeted towards kids is a step in the right direction and really pushing kind of in a dramatic and powerful way, school choice. So we kind of are giving families the choice about how best to raise their kids. And that might mean a charter school. It might mean a private school, it might a religious school, whatever. But we've seen in the last year and a half, obviously, how so many public schools have failed our kids and that failure extends now beyond just, you know, the the three R's. Mm-hmm. It also extends, as we know, to kind of their inability to form our, our kids for strong relationships strong marriages strong families down the road you know too many public schools kind of fail in, in that domain as well in the cultural domain and so we've got to give our families more choices so in terms of a conservative agenda policy agenda it's mm-hmm. got to i think look to you know, um, education when it comes to doing a better job on vocational education and giving parents a lot more choices, like you know, Indiana's just pushed through a basically a voucher scheme that allows families in lower and middle class contexts to have more than four thousand bucks per child to make the choice that they think is best for for their family and their kids. That's that's the direction we move. Um, and then when it comes to work, doing kind of more to reform how we subsidize work. Um, and then when it comes to marriage, finally, we have got to stop penalizing marriage in our means tested programs. And so right now, particularly Medicaid and many of our child care subsidies are kind of set up unintentionally in ways that end up making marriage a bad deal financially, particularly for working class couples who have seen the biggest, you know, retreats from marriage in the last three decades or so. And so. Um, people on the Hill need to be thinking about new and creative ways to eliminate marriage penalties in our means tested policies. So, that I was talking to a couple, for instance, in Virginia recently. Beautiful, two daughters, um, two young daughters, and talking to them, it's good they're not married. I'm like, what, what's sort of going on here? And they said, well, they actually had sat down on the kitchen table and they'd gotten out probably their smartphone and they just ran the numbers and they'd figured out that if they were to marry, the mom would have lost access to Medicaid, which was their only access to health insurance, and so they're not married. So I just think it's kind of it's perverse that we have these set up these policies, you know, to help people that end up um, encouraging them to steer clear of marriage. So that's going to be, I think, you know, a big item on the policy agenda in the near future to kind of address the marriage penalties in ways that you know don't force working class couples to decide between health care insurance on the one hand and marriage on the other hand
0: yeah on that point you know you've hosted many discussions on the child allowance and on uh you know biden's federal uh expansion of of child care uh what are some of the drawbacks and concerns that you have about uh universal child care uh and based on your research is there is there a better way to be going about
2: this so one of I think the, the problems with Biden's American Families Plan is he wants to spend more than 400 billion dollars on expanding both daycare and expanding uh, public pre-K. And so the two issues there that I have with this kind of philosophically is that there, there's kind of a statist piece to this. He wants to put you know millions of extra kids into public pre-K and sort of basically increase the state's role in sort of shaping and caring for our young children. That's, that's one concern that I have. The other concern that I have is there's a kind of a workist agenda here, where, you know, in, in fact, Susan Rice, his chief domestic policy advisor in the White House, has been very particular about this in the New York Times. She said, like, our goal is to get as many parents working as possible. So the idea, right, is that work, again, is where we achieve our, you know, meaning and purpose in life. And so we've got to maximize the time that we're spending at work. Not recognizing that most American parents would prefer to have either a you know a parent or a family member care for their young children, so it's not kind of a cognizant of this sort of desire to put you know family care first, you know, not daycare. So that's I think another concern I have. Now, in terms of like just the empirical record here, I think it's just interesting to know two sets of findings. One is that Quebec did a big push for um, you know for universal care um, and. John Gruber, who is obviously no conservative, the MIT economist, and some colleagues evaluated this effort in, in Quebec, and they found that kids who were exposed to this new childcare regime, who grew up under you know this new policy um, in Quebec, were more likely to be floundering socially and emotionally, and boys were more likely to end up you know getting in trouble with the law when you know they were exposed to this this newer approach to. Um, to care. And then a a skeptical economist in Canada has recently kind of evaluated the same body of research from Quebec and has come up with some similar, um, you know, similar findings. And so the point here is that this research in Quebec and other research in the U.S. and elsewhere indicates that extensive non-parental care in the first year is not good for our kids socially and emotionally on average. Um, And so we shouldn't be kind of trying to get a large you know, push, a universal push for, you know, all kids. Now, there, there's one important exception we you look kids who are coming from, you know, homes where there's more poverty or more, um, you know, difficulty in the home, you know, do benefit from having the stability and structure of a high quality, you know, child care um, option for them. But again, that's not universal. That's, that's recognizing that in some cases, you know, that's the best thing for kids. But. Mm-hmm we should you know basically give families the opportunity to choose how to best care for their own kids and so that's why i'm in favor of a child allowance over a push for like universal child care you know as with biden's rules or as with senator elizabeth warren's you know, approach and i think republicans have to realize also here and this is i guess the last point on this question if we don't present a credible child allowance you know policy mm-hmm. to ordinary working families in America, I think the universal child care option that's being proposed by people like Senator Warren becomes the, you know, the best alternative. And so we have to realize that, you know, we've got to have something else to offer our families than just a big, you know, push for universal child care.
1: Right. And even beyond, so like Nick and I don't have children and you have a family, um, but even beyond just like Hard research and findings in these studies. If we look at um, findings on what parents actually want, you've written extensively on this. Parents don't actually want universal childcare, especially when they're coming from working class or minority households. And in fact, like, so even like just aside from like assessing policy on its own merit, like if the point of policy is serving the needs of the people, then like our policy needs to actually be providing middle and working class Americans with the things that they want. So could you expand a little bit about your findings, especially in Hispanic households when it comes to childcare? And child allowance needs.
2: Yeah, so one of the striking things is that the group that's sort of most likely to want policies that allow parents to work full time, you know, policies like you know, paid child care, are well-educated uh, parents. You know, so the, the elites who kind of write about these issues in the media, who staff the Hill often, who staff the White House, who you know are in in the academy. Mm-hmm. This particular subset of our society does want to ramp up childcare in a big and profound way. By contrast, other Americans are much more likely to prefer having family members care for their young kids, um, which we see in our our work with the American Compass Survey that was done by YouGov. And we also saw in this in this survey that Hispanics were the sort of racial and ethnic group who were the most likely to prize having parents and family members care for their young kids. And so, as we're thinking about policies that also kind of recognize the profound pluralism in American life I think we should be pursuing policies that again give parents the the choice uh, recognizing that middle class working class Hispanic parents especially are more likely to prefer uh, options that allow them to have either a parent at home or a grandparent um, you know kind of coming into the mix and just kind of giving families cash you know allows them flexibility in this regard whereas kind of focusing on putting a lot of money into institutional child care is kind of just privileging one approach, one model of how to do work and family.
0: So we have a lot of, um, I think, married or soon to be married mm-hmm. listeners. Um, so kind of as a as a more personal, bit of a, a lighthearted question, I mean, right. what's, what's your best marriage advice to, I mean, me, obviously, who's getting married very soon, but also, uh, you know, to our listeners who, some of whom, you know, may have already been married for a long time, some of whom have gotten married recently. What's your best piece of advice that you give to some of these young families you talk to?
2: Yeah, I think it's about basically, I would say sort of communion, commitment, and uh, community. And so what I mean by that is sort of in terms of the community, recognizing that you've got to kind of, you know... Particularly, I think for for couples who have kids in the picture, there's often a tendency, I think, today among young adults to sort of or middle aged adults with the kids to kind of helicopter around their parents and around their kids and to kind of lose sight of the importance of kind of keeping the, the marriage itself, you know, going. And so my my wife's parents, for instance, would always tell her that, you know, their marriage was the most important thing because in part, you know my wife and her siblings would eventually leave the household and they mm-hmm. wanted to kind of, so just re- realizing you kind of need to cultivate that sense of communion is, is pretty, pretty important with things like a regular date night, for instance, to be concrete. Um, this, the second thing I would say is kind of commitment is obviously essential in an age where there's so many people living um, unrooted lives. And so, um, you know, having that appreciation for marital permanence having that appreciation for marital fidelity and recognizing that you've kind of, you've got to kind of be concrete to sort of live the virtues of commitment. Um, and so, you know, um, you know, having conversations with your spouse about sort of, you know, h- how to best do that is, you know, being practical is, is certainly advice that I would give to people. Um, and then the third piece is about community, kind of recognizing that, you know, we're not lone rangers. And so if we're going to succeed in our married lives, we need to kind of surround ourselves with friends and a community that s- supports us and sustains us. And uh, kind of in some ways, ironically, the best example that I can give here is a sort of a negative Republican example. And I'm thinking of the example of Governor Mark Sanford from you know, South Carolina. And you know, there was this reporter one day who was kind of trying to track him down, couldn't find him. And the word came back that he was hiking the Appalachian Trail. And, you know, the reporter didn't really buy that and somehow managed to figure out that he was coming off a plane from South America at the Atlanta airport. Um, That's kind of strange. You know, he'd been kind of gone AWOL for a while. And it turns out that he had been hanging out with his new soulmate in in Latin America, um, who was not his wife. He was married with, with, I think, four boys at the time. Um, And what had happened when you kind of look at the story here is that he had a bunch of buddy friends, guy friends. And I think like every year they would go on some big international trip, you know, and, you know, and do who knows what, but not good stuff. And so on one of these trips to South America, he had met this woman, you know, who was not his wife and, you know, ended up, you know, having an affair, getting divorced, the whole nine yards. But mm-hmm. the point is, is that this in part, all this began because he made some bad decisions about his friendships. And if mm-hmm. he'd made better decisions about his friendships and kind of who he you know, hung out with, um, he probably would not have ended up getting divorced um, and, you know, and being unfaithful to his wife in this in this particular way. So the point I'm making simply is that, you know, it's really important kind of who you hang with when you're married. And so pick your friends, pick your community wisely with an eye mm. towards people who will sustain you in your married life.
0: Yeah, you are who you spend time with. Exactly. That's, that's totally. so true. Yeah. Um, where can people find uh you know what you're working on how can they keep up with you and and the important work that you're doing
2: so um you can find uh, our research at familystudies.org for the student family studies and i'm on twitter at brad wilcox ifs um but i think family studies is a great place to go for our work i'm also doing a new report uh this uh this fall with ai as well and kind of the the post-covid family and mm-hmm. kind of what that's going to look like based upon this news this new survey with you go
0: Cool. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. It's been excellent. Thank you. Every week, we like to highlight a piece from AmCannon, our content aggregator that you can access at americanmoment.org/amcannon. The piece that we'd like to highlight this week uh, is a piece by Michael Brendan Doherty, uh in the National Review called "For the Children: America's Fertility Rate Problem." Uh, this is something that you know I've taken a particular interest in, uh, you know, as someone who is looking to uh, you know, start a family relatively Mm -hmm. soon. Uh, and I guess I had my own, um, you know, red pilling moment, uh, about, um, you know, the, the, the fertility issues going on in the United States. Um, and this isn't just, you know, there's, there's much ado made, you know, by myself included about how, you know, uh, chemicals and the things that we consume that we put in our body, on our body, Um, you know, even the clothes that you wear, uh, can affect, you know, men's fertility and, and testosterone and that sort of thing. Um, but fertility goes much deeper than that. It goes to, uh, why are people deciding to have kids or to not? Why are people deciding, uh, to have families or not? Um, in, in Michael's piece, what he kind of talks about is is what this world is going to look like, where, you know, people deciding to have, you know, to get married and have kids is a less fashionable option. It's more something that's looked down upon, uh, you know, fatherhood, motherhood, instead of something that's celebrated at a young age, as it should be, is something that's more. Why would you do that or mm-hmm. why would you do that so soon? Uh, and it's been. um. Uh, 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 I would say a real drag on today's youth. You know, what are we, what do we exist for? Why are we here uh, if not to, you know, create the next generation? Uh, so I'd highly recommend that you, check this piece out um, Emma what did what do you think about this
1: yeah absolutely so this piece hits on it and we actually talk about it some on the episode today um, but particularly looking at fertility rates um, pre during and then post covid so initially when we went into um, shelter in place and orders went out etc um, everyone was like oh no here's gonna come a big baby boom couples are locked away days on in nothing to do but in reality we saw the complete opposite happened and America actually went through through a significant baby bust, with fertility rates dropping down to 1.7, and this is super wonky in the weeds. But to have a sustaining society, you need your fertility rate actually to be at 2.2 average births per woman, um, and we were significantly below that. And so, I think like studies that were done have, um, and this article talks about, it, have hypothesized that we've actually foregone about 500 000 to 800 thousand children um, during the COVID time, and then moving forward because of yeah, because of the scarcity. There and the way that people responded. And so now, as we're coming out of COVID, looking ahead, like um, we have low fertility rates, but now, like Nick was saying, like we also have a culture that doesn't value and it doesn't prioritize children um, for various reasons. And so that's going to have a really significant impact on our culture and like on our society's flourishing as a whole. Um, yes, yeah, so this piece was really interesting, hit on a lot of it, and talked about a few scholars who have been doing really good work on this topic.
0: Yeah. Let that be our exhortation to you. (laughs) Get married, have children. It's actually funny as a, as a, just as a side story, you know, a little Easter egg. Um, when Evie and I were in Alaska, um, the last day we were there, our flight left at like 9 Mm -hmm. PM. And so we went up to, uh, China hot Springs, which is Mm -hmm. like natural hot Springs, uh, you know, like 60 miles North of, of, of Fairbanks, Alaska. And we went to, they have this ice bar, Mm-hmm. um well it's a whole ice palace but there's a bar mm-hmm. on the inside and they only it's all made of ice and they only serve apple i don't ask me why maybe it's because it doesn't freeze i don't know but we're you know we're having our like apple teeny in an ice glass sitting on an ice mm-hmm. seat at an ice bar
1: that sounds horrible by the way i yeah, don't know why covered, anyone would choose to
0: do that it was covered in like in in I think it was like moose hide or something so you're so you're like butt was horrible cool, but it was it was really cool but we were at this bar and kind of adjacent to us are these are these like big russian guys with with <laughs> beards right and they're you know kind of yelling just having a good time and they start you know basically they're they're celebrating and they say hey we're gonna buy everyone at the bar another round and i was like oh god another apple tini? <laughs> are you kidding me so anyway, <laughs> they, they you know it brings out uh, you know kind of the next round, and so we're talking to to mm-hmm. some of these some of these guys right next to us. It turns out they're not actually like they're not Russian citizens; they're they're American citizens. Uh, they were salmon fishermen from hmm. uh it, you know in, in Alaska, and they had gotten to the point where they um they're so senior right in the in the fishing community that they fish for like a couple weeks a year. And then they just like vacation. So they had they'd rented two RVs. One they said was their bar RV and the other one was their sleeping RV. <laughs> it was very Russian. <laughs> um, and they drove like 10 hours, you know, up to the up to the hot springs. But anyway, I was I was talking with them and, and they were there, these guys were there with their wives. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we made mention of the fact that Evie and I had just gotten engaged mm-hmm. and they were oh my gosh, they wanted to celebrate. They were they were going insane. Mm-hmm. And uh I asked them, I said, candidly, I mean, you know, you, you guys seem to be, you know, a little like elders, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, it turns out these guys were only in their late forties and like already had grandkids, but, um, they, (laughs) I said, what's your number one piece of advice? Mm -hmm. And, and the oldest guy in the group says, have kids. Like it Mm -hmm. is, it is the best thing. It is like my joy, Mm -hmm. uh, when I come home from, from, you know, weeks out on the boat fishing To be home with my children and to take care of my wife Um, and these guys you know in their late 40s each of them I think the smallest group had I I think the smallest family was like he had six kids or seven maybe and the most was 11 Um, I mean it was just an insane Mm -hmm. um, amount but these this was just one of the like they were all these people were the most joy-filled you know marriages and families I've ever seen so if you're gonna take any advice from us today um, and from some random Russian guys I met in Alaska, get married, have kids, make it a priority. Um, just to kind of close out, you know, you can you can find us at AmericanMoment.org and on Twitter at uh, at am Moment Org. You can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Solheim. That's S-O-L-H-E-I-M. What's your handle on Like, I actually don't even know.
1: And you can find me on Twitter at Emma Posey 7. Okay. Which is a holy number, so that's pretty great.
0: <laughs> it's just because there were six Emma Posies <laughs> before you. Like, you, you—
1: The Lord saved it just Okay, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm sure. All right. <laughs> well, we will see you next week.
1: Have a good week, everyone.
0: Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.